Hey, everybody. Who's excited to look into God's Word today? All right, I love it. I love it. Yes, I'm very excited to bring it to you today. Uh, a lot that we're going to be digging into as we continue on in our Strength and Weakness series that we've been in through 2 Corinthians. And so glad that you're here. If you're here in person, or maybe you're listening in person in the classic venue or on the Moon campus, or maybe you're checking this out at home somewhere else online, we're glad that you're tuned in as well. There's a lot for us here to, to take in. And again, I'm very excited to bring it to you. You know that they say that one of the most important things that we would learn in life and in leadership is the ability to say no. The ability to say no. And that's a real thing because it's so easy for us to get to a place where we spread ourselves a little bit too thin because we like to say yes to opportunities and to experiences that come along. And I get that. I mean, I'm one of those who tends to fall into that trap. I, I find it difficult to say no oftentimes. And, and that's one of the reasons why I ended up being the guy who chaperoned the 30 screaming first graders to Chuck E. Cheese one time. It was not a very fun experience. Probably the reason why I agreed to my parents urging that I would wear the leisure suit to the junior high banquets. Some of you are old enough to remember leisure suits. I actually had, that's not me, but I actually had one that looked a little bit like that, right? Saying no would have been a useful trait or ability at that time. It would have been helpful. And saying no is also something that is a useful ability, and we're going to see that as we take a look at a very interesting passage of Scripture we're going to consider together. This is the power of no, I want to talk to you about today. The power of no. We're going to see it in a pretty unusual passage of Scripture, actually, that we find in 2 Corinthians, beginning in chapter 6. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up there, or find one if you're at home. Go find it on the, the nightstand or the table or wherever you have that, or uh, grab one that you brought with you if you're in person or your Bible app. Some way to have this open. It's not all going to be on the screen for you, so It'll be useful to have that there. Kind of an unusual passage of Scripture, but a very powerful one to be sure. It's an inspiring passage, and I believe that if we can learn this power of no we're going to be talking about, it can take us to a place that, honestly, we've never gotten ourselves before in our spiritual walk. Something that can be brand new and transformational for us. Now, when we talk about the power of no today, I'm not just talking about the ability to say no to some things that we ought not to enter into. That's really not what this is about, though that might be an appropriate application in certain places, but not really what we're talking about. Instead, I want to take a look at one very intriguing approach to life that produced three powerful commitments, three powerful knows, if you will. And we need to look at these so that we might be able to figure out how to incorporate these into our own lives, because every one of them is essential for us as well. So the first commitment that we find here is to live with no regrets. No regrets is where we get started. When I think about the Apostle Paul, our author in general, no regrets so much seems to be a fitting 
characteristic or a fitting label for his whole life. There wasn't anything that he wasn't willing to do. There wasn't any length he wasn't willing to go toward the end of serving Christ so that he might fulfill all that the Lord had in store for him so that there would be no regrets that he would have as he made his way through life and service to God, which is what makes it so ironic since he was so willing to go to any length whatsoever that he found such opposition coming against him from the church that was there in Corinth, that he's working so hard to help. And if you've been with us in previous weeks, we've, we've talked about some of that. But let me just kind of remind you of the, of the background here just briefly to set the stage for what's going on, and specifically this passage. You will remember if you've been with us that Paul on one of his missionary journeys comes into Corinth and he preaches the gospel and this is a new thing for them and and the Jews kind of rejected it for the most part but the Gentiles believed and many came to faith and and he started the church there in Corinth and he stayed there with them for a while to help them kind of get off the ground but eventually he needed to continue on with his journeys, his life, his call from the Lord, which was to continue to preach the gospel in other places and start the church in in other places. And so he goes on, and while he's gone, there are some false teachers that come in, and they have their own personal agendas. They're trying to enrich themselves. They're trying to gain their own following. And so they, they sort of undermine Paul and undermine the message, the true message of the gospel, and they go their own direction. And in part, or part of what they do is not just undermine the message, but they're also trying to discredit Paul. And they say a number of things. They said that he didn't have the credentials or the authority to really teach. They said, hey, you guys, you know, he used to persecute Christians, so why is he the guy that you would set up and really listen to? In fact, they even picked on his physical appearance. They said that he's unimpressive physically, and he's not all that much to look at. And I think about that, and it's like, well, if to be a good preacher, you've got to be a lot to look at, a lot of us have some problems, right? Yeah, you don't need to amen or anything at that point, but you get the idea. Of course, word of all of that reaches Paul, and so he knows he's got to combat that because they're speaking against the true message of Christ. They're speaking against the gospel. And he also knows he needs to defend himself because they're trying to undermine him. And if they can cast off Paul, then that's only one step before they cast off Paul's message. And so he knows he needs to combat that. And so he writes this letter. This letter of 2 Corinthians is the most personal of all of the letters that Paul writes. And he needs to speak of himself and what he's been doing so that they wouldn't throw out the gospel as they tried to throw out him. He probably even gets more personal than what is is natural for him, but he knows that he needs to do so, and so we have this letter. He wants to be sure that he's pressing forward in his ministry and that he's not letting go of anything that needs to be done in Corinth so that he would have no regrets. So he presses on. So with all of that in mind then, what we see that he writes here makes perfect sense, as where otherwise it might be, you know, a little bit confusing to us. So let's take a look at it here. Verse 3 of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, he writes, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Stop there for a second. In a general sort of way, he's inviting people to take a look at his life and the way that he's lived. He's given sacrifice upon sacrifice for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the Corinthians' 
themselves. He's just been pressing on, and he, he's been upright in every way, and he wants them to look at him and understand that and see that. He says, we've done nothing to discredit the word of Christ. Look at our lives, he says. And then that leads Paul to highlight some of those things that he's been willing to give on behalf of Christ. He's not complaining about the things that he's about to say, but you can understand the degree to which somebody values the commitments that they say they live by by looking at how, to what lengths they're willing to go in order to carry out those commitments. And that's very much what we have here. Look at how committed Paul is. Verse 4 says, rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. All right? Who wants to sign up and go with Paul? That sounds pretty treacherous. That doesn't sound all that inviting or appealing at all, but Paul has endured all of that. And it kind of sounds like this run-on list of, uh, of attributes or things that he has suffered as though it's just list after list after list or item after item. But one commentator has helped us to break this down. He says, one thing, one thing, and one thing. So it's like, there's one category, and now here's another. The first of those is just sort of general troubles and tribulations that he came into. That's the first one. If you look at those verses right there, the first three are troubles, hardship, and distresses. The next three troubles are ones, they're a little different category. These are the ones that come upon him from other people or from the outside. They are beatings, imprisonments, and riots. These are some of the most visible and egregious things that Paul suffered. And you can just sort of feel or experience the pain of all that he's gone through as he describes them for us. In fact, later on in 2 Corinthians, he gets this. We'll look at that in detail when we get there, but just to give you a little bit of a, a vantage point of some of the things that he's gone through that have been things that have come against him from others. There later on in 2 Corinthians, it says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. If you're good with math, you know that's 195 lashes that he's received. It's five times what Jesus received. We see what it did to Jesus, right? Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. Any one of those things could have killed him, but the Lord spared him, and he just pressed on, and he did more, and they heard him more, and he got up, and he did more. Do you remember at the end of, of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when they find the ark already, and now they're, the Germans get it, and they're going to fly it out, right? And so Indiana Jones comes up, and he's going to get get that plane and all of that. And now uh, this big dude comes, remember him, the shirtless guy? He comes out and he just basically pelts Indiana Jones for a little while until the propeller gets him. I'm not going to describe that. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about, right? But uh, now Indiana Jones has to figure out another way. So he gets on horseback and he's running after, or he's racing after the truck and he jumps off the horse and onto the truck, after which point he gets shot, but it doesn't stop him. He just keeps pressing on to his goal. And then he gets thrown basically off the front of the vehicle, off the front of the truck. If you've seen this, you know what I'm talking about, right? And he's about to get run over by the truck, but he ends up going under it. And, and with his whip, he, he kind of lashes on and, and he gets dragged behind the truck and, and he just gets up 
and he keeps going and he, he pulls himself back up and he gets back. Nothing was going to dissuade him from getting back on that truck and doing the thing that he was trying to get done. And that's pretty impressive for Indiana Jones. But truthfully, if endurance against all odds is the measuring stick, the Apostle Paul is a much better action hero than Harrison Ford. Much better. Because he's endured so much more over so much a lengthier period of time, and he too just keeps going. He keeps getting up, and it doesn't matter what they throw against him. Paul just keeps going. It's very impressive to say the least. Then that last bit of the troubles that Paul mentions, the last triplet there, the end of verse 5 is also very interesting. What are these three? Hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. These are interesting. They're a different category. These are basically all self-inflicted. These are things that Paul has allowed himself to get in. Hard work. There was no degree to which Paul was not willing to go for the sake of fulfilling his call that came from Christ. And if that required him to go through sleepless nights, he's okay with that. And if it meant that he had to go without food for a while, he's good with that. There's just nothing that's going to keep him from fulfilling God's call. He's going to have no regrets at all about getting it done. So where do you get the strength to do that? I mean, you've got to be pretty filled up yourself to have that which you can pour out. And so he tells us some of the things that are filling him. As he goes on, verse 6 says, impurity, understanding, patience, and kindness. These are some characteristics that are his. You can recognize those as some of the fruit of the Spirit, which seems fitting, because he goes on, verse 6 says, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love and truthful speech, and in the power of God with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. Paul is clearly tapping into a power that is greater than his own. Now, some people say, well, Paul, he's just on a power trip. Paul, yeah, he's just all full of himself. Listen to the things he's saying. He's just full of... That's not what he's saying. If you look at what he's saying, he's saying what he's full of is this Holy Spirit. That God is the one who is filling him. And if you look at it, the reason he's writing and the way that he's writing, he's giving all glory to God. He's not patting himself on the back. He's pointing people to a Savior. Then Paul wraps up this no regrets opening section by pointing out the opposition that threatened to bury him under, but it didn't ultimately. And he says it very interestingly. He says it in these couplets, in these contrasts. You'll see it as I read it. In verse 8, he says, he and his companions are, he starts, genuine, yet regarded as imposters. He's saying, we came to you in openness and in honesty. We were genuine with you, yet you've considered us to be imposters. That's the first couplet. He goes on, he says, known, they knew him, yet regarded as unknown. Dying, yet we live on. Beaten, and yet not killed. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. Having nothing, and yet possessing everything. Paul was a guy who wasn't going to leave anything on the table when it came to serving the Lord. He was going to arrive at the Bema seat. Here we go again. The judgment seat of Christ with no regrets. He wasn't going to shrink back in any way, shape, or form. And it's a beautiful thing to see. And I want you to arrive at that day in the same way, with no regrets, having confidence to stand before the Lord on your own. And I'm guessing you want that too. But you might be sitting there thinking, I can't do that. That would be impossible for me because I've already got regrets. 
And I get that. All of us have regrets. Things that have happened that we've done or things that we haven't done or things we've said or things that we have failed to say. You've got that. You might be thinking of something even now in this moment. Thankfully, the forgiveness of God is available because of the cross. And so he steps in to our circumstance so that we might not just simply be constantly bound to regret upon regret, but so that we might find freedom from the regrets of our lives so that we essentially might get a slate that can be cleaned from which we can begin to move our way forward to start ourselves even afresh and anew. There might be something that you walked in here that today is your regret, something that's already happened where you can wipe that slate clean and you can move forward with confidence and with joy and with commitment and with no regrets as you face the future. That's one thing that you might have had in as a, a, an objection. The other objection may be that you're not sure that you can handle a life that looks like Paul's with troubles and hardship. You might be like, does serving Christ mean that I'm going to basically have Paul's experience? Because I'm not so sure that I can handle that. Truthfully, I don't know what your experience is going to be. Everybody's different, and so you're not Paul, and so your experience is not going to be exactly what Paul's experience was. No two lives are the same. But you don't need to concern yourself that all of what happened to him is going to happen. You don't have to refuse to ever get on a boat again because you're thinking, well, Paul had a shipwreck, so I'm going to have one, so this must be my time. You don't have to worry about that, right? What I do know is that God will provide for you whatever you need to face the circumstance that you're in. I know that he will do that. And so that we can move forward with confidence. And we can know that whatever situation we find ourselves in, that God will give us the grace in the moment to handle the circumstance that we face. So you can go forward with confidence, entering into whatever the call of God would be on your life, so you would have no regrets, and that you can face it well. The power of no leads us to that place where we can live a life of no regrets. Then there's another power of no, if you will, another no that we see demonstrated here by Paul in this text, and that's no reservations. No regrets, no reservations. Because of the way Paul has been treated by the people in Corinth, it would have been nat very natural for him to close himself off from them, right? To guard himself against them. Because when somebody does something against you, there's, there's, a, there's a chasm that exists there, right? There's a problem. There's, there's a pain. You don't have a close relationship. I mean, I can remember this all the way back to growing up with my brother and sister. Because they would do things against me. They would not be very nice to me. I, I never did that to them, but they would do that to me. And so there would be this tension between us, and we wouldn't be getting along. And my parents would never allow that to happen for very long. And they would step in, and they wanted to be sure that we would make up. And there was a period of time there where what we had to do as brothers and sisters to make up with one another was to go and kiss one another. If you want a motivation to not ever be at odds with a brother or a sister, I mean, that's it. If you've got kids, you want to get them to the place where they're not going to be at odds with their brother. Make them kiss to make up. It was not a pleasant experience, I've got to say. 
Because you end up at odds with people who do things against you. And, and that's what Paul has here, you would think. You would think they're working against him, they're calling him names, they're telling him he doesn't look very good. It's like, I don't want anything to do with you. Fine, you do that, I'm going to go over here to some people I can get along with. That's not what Paul does. In fact, Paul does exactly the opposite. Instead of being reserved toward them, he opens himself up to them. No reservations. This is absolutely stunning. Look at verse 11, the way he's handling himself. It says, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. He's just saying, we've held nothing back. And open wide our hearts to you. We're not withholding our affection from you, but, we are withholding, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak, to you, uh, I speak as to my children. Basically saying, this is a message even kids should get and can understand. Open wide your hearts also. The problem that plagued the church in Corinth and put them at odds with Paul is that they're withholding connection. They're withholding affection. Where people refuse to open themselves up to other people, there's never going to be a relationship that's going to thrive. In fact, what it becomes is sort of this breeding ground for animosity. A breeding ground for animosity. The problem is that we live in this loner culture. Most people are inclined to living private lives, isolated from one another. And I get that. Sometimes even feel the pull to that. But that's not the biblical example. It's certainly not what the New Testament is instructing us to do. And it's most definitely not the model that we see in Paul. If we want to have relationships that are meaningful and that are going to fill us up, we need to be willing to be known. That's not just a good idea. That's what we're called to do as followers of Christ. What did the Scripture say? Love God, love others. Love God, love others. But that can be hard. Because there are challenges that can spring up. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, speaks to that, speaks to some of the challenges that can come along, but also the, the urgency to pursue this. Here's what he writes. He writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. We could stop right there. There's a mouthful right there. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything. And here's some of the challenge. And your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. Far too many people or groups have retreated behind their protective walls, and as a result, we have a context of increasing strife, increasing division that exists in our world today, and we all see it. For any healing to take place, whether that would be between neighbors or between races or between people who have different worldviews, we're going to need to risk being vulnerable. Love and vulnerability are attractive. The world longs to see that. The world needs to see that. And if that should be generated from anywhere, it should come from the church first. We should be the ones demonstrating this and out in front. Why not? Well, the downside would be that, well, if I, if I put myself out there, if I make myself vulnerable, maybe, maybe the person's not going to respond. In fact, maybe they'll even stomp on my vulnerability. And there's no relationship that's going to develop out of that. But the upside is that it would be received. 
that there would be something reciprocal that would happen, that there is a relationship that might be developed out of which could come the gospel. It's most definitely worth the risk. Entering in with no reservations. I'm not going to hold myself back from you. I'm going to be willing to put myself out there as Paul does so that God might be honored. No regrets. No reservations. Incidentally, the same principle applies inside the walls of the church. More than anywhere, we should be a place of love, a place of openness, a place of connection with one another. We should connect to individuals and to groups. We should have people into our homes that we would get to know them. We should jump into a small group where we can do life together with one another instead of buying into the lie that the loner culture is the best way to go. Because it's not. We need to open our lives. No reservations. The power of no as you can see in Paul, can take us to a place where we can make a dynamic impact, where we can be a changed people, but we need to learn this. No regrets, no reservations, and one more, no compromise. No compromise. Even though 2 Corinthians is one of the least well-known letters in the whole of the New Testament, it has some of the best-known verses in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, you've probably recognized these as we've made our way along. You said, oh, I know that verse. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For we all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. My grace is sufficient for you for the power is made perfect in weakness. All amazing verses that come right out of 2 Corinthians. And there's another one that will probably sound familiar to you if you know the Bible at all as we continue. Verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Here's just some of the ways that he's explaining that, that first concept. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God has said, and now he's going to go into a number of different quotes from different places in the Old Testament. I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. We'll do all of these things. Why? Because we are going to live out of a no-compromise sort of mindset. And that's what all of that said, is that we're not going to be willing to compromise Ourselves. Well, of course, the, the, the well-known verse out of that is verse 14 that comes right at the top. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, if your first thought was, when you heard that read in the context of this broader passage, I thought that was a marriage verse that was in a marriage passage in the Scriptures. 
If that's what you thought, then you're a very aware reader or hearer, and good for you for listening critically like that. Paul is talking about a bigger principle here where he's concerned about people being yoked together. Now, we don't have occasion to think about yokes all that much because we're not that much of an agricultural or agrarian sort of society. So, don't think about yokes that much except when it comes to that yellow part of, of an egg, that donkey part. And yes, donkey for the longest time in my life, I thought everybody called the yoke the donkey part because that's what my parents called it. Imagine my embarrassment when I went out to breakfast when I got my first job with some people and asked the server to bring my eggs donkey. I, I, I never did live that down with those people. Donkey eggs. That's a different sort of yoke. But in an agrarian or agricultural context of the first century, this is a very vivid picture. Very vivid picture. It was a common practice in those days, as it still is in places today, to hitch two animals together, to yoke them together. With that wooden yoke, you kind of put it behind their heads or sort of on their shoulders, as it were, and you strap them together because together they can accomplish so much more. And that's great, and that works wonderfully, but it wouldn't work so well if you yoked together a horse and a goat, right? That wouldn't work well. I mean, imagine that. You can just kind of see the goat's feet going. It's not even touching the ground. Wouldn't get anything done. That sounds ridiculous. Even in the Old Testament, there was a law. It said that you should not yoke together an ox and a donkey for this very same Reason. So Paul is borrowing from this imagery to say that a believer and an unbeliever should not be yoked together because they don't fit with one another. Why not? Because they operate out of a different value system, and inevitably there's going to be a moment of time when there's going to be conflict, and there's going to be a pressure to conform to a belief that you don't actually hold that's against your fundamental convictions. So does that mean that believers are better than unbelievers? Absolutely not. Most definitely not. We're all made in God's image. We all have equal value and equal purpose. Does that mean that believers shouldn't associate with unbelievers? No, that's not at all what it means. We should associate together. We should engage with folks who have not yet come to Christ. We should invest in their lives. In fact, just in last week's passage, we saw that he was saying, Paul was saying the believers are ambassadors for Christ, that they have the message of reconciliation that they need to go and take to those who have yet to believe. There's nothing wrong with believers associating with unbelievers. We should do that. But associating together is not at all the same as being yoked together. They're very different concepts. Being yoked together could be described as a relationship where the nature of that relationship could lead you or pressure you or coerce you to some action because of the tightness of the bond that exists there. There's nothing wrong with getting into those sorts of relationships. Paul's just saying that if you're in that tight of a relationship that you should do that only with another believer. That's his point that he's trying to make here, one where you share common values so you won't be pushed in a direction that is perhaps going to take you in opposition to God's will. So what would those sorts of yoked relationships be? Well, 
back to where we started. I think marriage most definitely is one of those. No, this is not a marriage passage. But this principle applies very much so because a marriage relationship is a yoke relationship. You're bound together permanently. And the nature of the relationship that you have is going, the one is going to influence the other. So it's important that that would be understood and move forward appropriately. Another one would be a business partnership. And you can probably think of others where you would be linking yourself to other people. Now, I know it can be tempting to set aside this principle when it looks like, well, if I entered into that business partnership with this person, it looks like it could be very lucrative. So it's like, well, this doesn't apply, or, or I can get my way around this so that I might enter into that because it looks so good from where I sit. Or the same thing with marriage, that you can, maybe you've chosen to date that person with this unequal yoke. It's like, now you start to fall in love, and it's like, well, they're such a nice person. Eventually, certainly, they'll come to trust Christ. And I can introduce you to plenty of people who thought that same thing, but it never happened. And they'll tell you about the tensions and the problems and the, and the differing worldviews and values that are being pulled at and tugged at, and even relationships that have fallen apart. So that leads some people to ask, well then, if I'm already married and I'm in an unequally yoked marriage, should I get out? The Apostle Paul actually spoke very plainly to that. In 1 Corinthians, the same group of people just in the previous letter, he said, no. He said, no, you stay in that relationship because of the significance of the bond that marriage is. So stay, don't get out. Paul is calling us to be sold out in our relationship with God, and he knows the pressures that can come if we're bound too closely together with people who have a different value system than what we live by. So this is a very practical advice that he is, is giving that will help us as we consider where we are and where we're going and what we enter into and what we don't. So he writes these words so that nobody would be put in a position where they would be forced to compromise. No compromises, he says. The power of no. That's how Paul lived his life. It's a path to blessing and purpose and fulfillment and righteousness. As we choose to live in such a way where we have no regrets, because we know what God's called us to do and we're not making excuses for not doing it, or we're not choosing to do something else completely different, living with no regrets. No reservations saying, I'm not going to stay, stay back. I'm not going to be afraid to, to jump in and do the things that God has called me to do. So I won't have any reservations about giving myself and making myself vulnerable and stepping into relationship instead of trying to protect myself. And no compromises. Not being willing to set aside the truth that is brought to us from the Scriptures and end up in a situation where we're pulled and tugged and there are priorities that move us away from God's Word instead of just toward it. The power of no. 
I hope that you can say yes to living out those no's. Because that's the thing that's going to set us up in a place where we'll be able to have the confidence that Paul has. Where we'll be able to make the difference that Paul makes. No regrets. No reservations. No compromises. Pray that together we'll move ourselves forward in the power of no. Heavenly Father, challenging (laughs) to be sure to have an example like that of the Apostle Paul. But Lord, we're thankful for that example. Thankful for the, the heights that we're called to. And I pray that we would be willing to be those people and that you would open our minds right now to the circumstances in our own life where we've been making compromises, where we've been living with reservations, where we've got our regrets. Father, those are traps we all fall into. And I pray that you would just help us to strip away those things that that are leading us in those directions and that instead we would find just the clarity of what you're calling us to in a passage like this. Thank you for the power of this passage, for the power of example, and for the power of no. And I just pray for all of those who are listening in these moments. I pray for myself. I ask that you would give us the courage and the conviction to live our lives in these ways to your glory. No regrets, no reservations, no compromise, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.